Hello, all, and welcome to the B-Roll. I am Ben Friedman, and Branson Indelicato is still not with me. He is currently in the process of moving, and I did not want to do another episode alone because I still haven't fully realized my thoughts on the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest episode, which I did alone, but I didn't enjoy filming it. So I asked a friend of mine to jump on. He is a professor at Chico State and a film journalist whose name is Forrest Hartman. Forrest, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on, Ben. It's great to, to be talking to you. And you you know me, I always love talking movies. So Yeah. And uh, for people who didn't go to Chico State or aren't in the Northern California uh, film critic circles, Forrest, could you just give us some just background details about uh, your life, who you've worked for and what you've done in film journalism? Sure. Well, teaching is really a a second career for me, although one that I'm loving and I've been doing it long enough now, it it feels like a first career. But um, if we go back deep enough in in my background, um, I was a professional journalist for well, I, I mean, I, I, it's more than two decades now because I still do a little bit of freelance journalism, even though I, I mostly teach. Uh, but for a long time, uh, I was primarily a newspaper journalist, but I would also do some uh, broadcasting. Um, I worked in the Marysville, Yuba City area at the Marysville, uh, Yuba City Appeal Democrat for uh, three years where I was the entertainment editor. Uh, from there, I went to Reno, where I was the arts editor of the Reno Gazette Journal for about 13 years. And as part of my stint there, I was also the resident film critic. Um, I would review films for the paper and also appear on local uh, broadcast. And I would contribute stories there nationally to the Gannett News Service, mm-hmm. which is now defunct, but Gannett owned the Reno Gazette Journal. So I was part of the, the big chain there. <laughs> and you've also, I know, have gotten to do stuff with Hollywood Studios. If I'm correct, you've gone to interview some celebrities, including Ryan Reynolds, correct, for Deadpool? Oh, yeah. I mean, over the years, I've done lots of things. Ryan Reynolds, I actually interviewed after I left the Reno uh, Gazette Journal. I did some interviews uh, that they ran on Action News Now, which is a station in Chico, California, um, uh, because I continued to review films, or I should say I I was continuing to review films uh, for the local TV station in Chico up until the pandemic. I really haven't done anything since the pandemic began hopefully we'll get that going again but well as you and all the listeners know uh, the pandemic skewed everything about film oh yeah so that's that's been on hold but yeah so i uh, interviewed uh ryan reynolds for action news now uh, when i was working in reno since i would contribute to Gannett news service which would distribute my stories nationally um i interviewed a whole bunch of people usually by phone because it was easiest but some sometimes in person as well yeah and so i met forrest my freshman year at chico state i took his Oh my gosh, what was the name of that class? It was Journalism 210, which is... Uh, yeah, Pop Culture. Uh, it, we're actually changing the name of it. But it was oh, wow. basically, so readers understand, it was an examination of, of popular culture and how it impacts and influences our, our lives through the representational messages that uh, are broadcast. <laughs> yeah, so I met him there. Uh, I really enjoyed the class, learned a lot, and then Obviously, with me being a big film fan, I learned about Forrest's past, connected that way. 
went on college, came back to your class senior year for history of film journalism, which was a class where we just watched movies and saw the representation of journalism in there. Pandemic hits, uh, you know, go on. Year later, this podcast gets made and I decide, oh, you know, I really need a co-host for this episode. So I contact him. Great. Uh, him being so gracious, decided to come on last minute, told him just literally, I think, less than 48 hours ago. But we're on and this is B-roll. So for this episode, uh, we do a random topic every few weeks. And with this month being Oscars month, I wanted to do the biggest snubs of the 20th century for the Academy Awards. And I gave guidelines for how we're defining snubs. And in this case, a snub is something that didn't even get nominated for an Academy Award. So I gave Forrest those guidelines a few days ago. And again, this is just for the 20th century. But yeah, and Forrest being a, you are a certified Critics' Choice Award voter, correct? Yeah, I, I continue, and, and hopefully that continues beyond this, because like I said, everything's a, a mess. Uh, but I've been voting in the Critics' Choice Awards for, honestly, I've lost track of, of how long, uh, for more than 10 years, uh, certainly. I usually attend the awards broadcast in person, but that didn't happen this year, because yeah, like most awards shows, it was uh, virtual. Uh, but yes, I, I do vote in the Critics' Choice Awards. Not to be confused with some people uh, equate that to voting for the Oscars and things. Mm. Not not the case. I, I just vote in the Critics' Choice Awards as part of the Broadcast Film Critics Association. Yeah, so reason I bring that up is just to kind of show further Forrest's credentials and his knowledge in this industry. So yeah, we're just going to kick it off. Uh, we're going to go about 20-ish minutes or so. I have a bunch of ones from all sorts of categories. and But I'll actually let you start first, Forrest, because I have a feeling there's going to be a few names that we have in common. Sure. So do you, do you want me to just name... Um... A, a snub how, how do you want to get this oh let's started just off? go uh you want to go one a piece so sure. you start with one i'll go one and then if we have to rattle off some a few at the end we'll just rattle off all right well i'm gonna go way back to 1931 if it is okay yeah go for um it. and and note that uh dracula the dracula starring bela lugosi which is now probably one of the uh most uh famous uh versions of that uh film ever did not get a single oscar nomination um and so i don't know if this counts as one or two ben but that of course means dracula the film itself was not up for um a, a best picture nomination but perhaps even the bigger snub there uh would be bela lugosi yeah. not getting nominated for best actor because uh, that would of course become the role that uh, lugosi would be most known for throughout his career uh not to diminish bela lugosi's work because mm. he, he would play a, a lot of characters throughout his career. Um, but I think Bela Lugosi not being up for, for best actor or not, you know, was a pretty tremendous snub and, and arguably the film not getting a nomination was, uh, you know, a problem as well. That's a great poll. And it is kind of shocking thinking about that character of all. I mean, if you're talking about just iconic characters and representations of those uh, characters, 
that Dracula performance is about as iconic as you get. And I actually pulled Universal in the 1930s has a lot of those snubs where you're just kind of shocked that not a single one got nominated. Uh, I saw Dracula on there. I actually pulled King Kong from 1933, which was when I saw that that had no nominations for that year or at least no nominations in Best Picture. I was pretty, <coughs> sorry, I was pretty shocked about that. Uh, and yeah, uh, films like this are always kind of weird because they have the Oscars are always biased against genre. But I feel like in the earlier stages when films were kind of in their infancy, films like Dracula, Frankenstein, King Kong actually had a better chance at getting in to some degree. You see films like Wizard of Oz get nominations but yeah I, the fact that dracula doesn't get nominated is pretty shocking uh, yeah I, I agree with you and i'm glad you mentioned king kong uh because i mean if i can mention another one from the same year as dracula you were talking about U universal really getting hammered um i agree also also uh, frankenstein from 1931 didn't get a nomination and that's james whale's sort of classic mm. take on that movie uh, you know many people look back at it and say that's a really good frankenstein movie and of course boris karloff starred in that as the mm. monster uh, the fact that it didn't get a nomination means Boris Karloff also wasn't nominated. So a lot, a lot of snubs surrounding those early Universal films. Yeah, I know Invisible Man also misses the nomination. I believe in '33, same year as King Kong. So, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. So Universal just has this like run where they're making some of the most iconic pictures at the time, and they're not getting anything. They're just being completely shut out. Yeah, and we look at, I mean, the interesting thing, these universal properties, I, I mean, obviously Dracula and Frankenstein were not created by Universal, mm. but but they gained the rights to them. Uh, these properties are still going today and churning out financially successful movies. Uh, but when you go back to these really early, like you say, iconic versions, the ones that I look back to as sort of the, the first ones that are really important on film, they basically got no acknowledgement outside of box office revenue yeah i know and that's been i think something that the oscars has always struggled with is inclusion of those genre type pictures uh that's why some of them are when i was defining snubs in my head that's why i had issues bringing some of them up uh where i'm like okay is this really a film that the academy would have recognized that was that's where the balance for me was was trying to figure out if this was a realistic film that was going to get nominated and I struggled with that. And this one was the one where I kind of had that balance of, was this realistic? But I think ultimately just due to the performance, it's just hard not to imagine it. So I'll go with mine next. I said, Jack Nicholson for the shining was, I mean, the reason obviously that this one's so hard to categorize is because Nicholson is an Academy darling. I think he had just got out of a stint in the seventies where I think he's been nominated five times and had just won for one flew over this cuckoo's nest in 76 film comes out in 75. If he wins in 76, but obviously the shining comes out very controversial film when it comes out unliked by a lot of critics, but regardless of that, that performance is so iconic. And so terrifying, like you're talking about movie villains. He is the perfect movie villain in that role. Just 
seeing his downfall and craze is just horrifying to watch. I mean, incredible uh, performance. And yeah, it's for, for you to note that. I mean, what's funny is Stan, Stanley Kubrick, although you're talking about Jack Nicholson, Stan, Stanley Kubrick as a director really didn't have a great track record with Oscars, despite being a fantastic director. And maybe that had something to do with it. But um, yeah, when I think about great performances in films, that Jack Nicholson uh, role comes up. In fact, half the time when you see a, a collage of historical movie roles mm. and, and such, a, 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 at least a few moments from that Jack Nicholson performance shows up at some point because it's so recognizable. Yeah. So that was my first biggest one after king kong so i'll let you go next all right i'm going to like stay back uh way back for a, a little bit if uh, uh if i can yeah go um for it. and i'm gonna say uh you know i think it's a shame that uh carrie grant uh, wasn't nominated for his girl Friday, which is a mm. uh, 1940 romantic comedy. You may have remembered we used that uh, film to some degree in my, my journalism class talked about it, but it's, it's just one of these really fast paced romantic comedies from that period. Uh, we're talking about an, an iconic actor, Cary Grant in sort of his traditional role, turning in a really nice uh, performance in, and, uh, you know, I think him not getting a, a nomination for that is is really a, a shame. Yeah. So this is a film that I've only seen once from your class. And to me, this one kind of in my head, this is one of the ones where this fits the mold of all kind of 1930s, 40s, just as a general where it's fast paced uh, talking kind of has that kind of has that early vibe of what would become Aaron Sorkin's dialogue in the 21st century. Uh, I, I didn't connect to this film. So this one to me, I saw it on the list and I figured you were going to bring it up because I knew how much you liked this movie from the class. Uh, like I said, one that did not come up for me, but certainly a good performance, another iconic performance. I have one from 1938 and you might have to correct me on this. It is Judy Garland for The Wizard of Oz. And the reason you might have to correct me on this is because there was a category called the Juvenile Awards in the Academy Awards for like the first 15 years. And that's where they nominated children, I guess. So people below the age of 18. And the... I was going to say, to be honest, I, some of those old rules are a little arcane and I'm not sure I can correct you, but yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> so the reason I'm asking about it is because she did win that award in 38 for the juvenile award or what uh, I believe is it's called. I was trying to figure out if that meant she wasn't qualified for best actress award. You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure to tell you the truth because we're going so back in Academy rules and they have changed over the years. Um, I cer certainly an actress of that age would qualify now because because yeah, we've, we've seen it happen. 
but um I, I, yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I can't be the, the, the authoritative voice here because I'm not sure they have had some rule changes over the years. And, and I'm not certain on that one. But yeah. but I will say that's a great choice, because certainly regardless of age, uh, what a, a another tremendous performance. Yeah. I, if you wanted to define Judy Garland in just one role, I mean, it's hard not to say this is the iconic Judy Garland film the reason i had difficulty finding this one is because it was it wasn't necessarily a rule change i just wasn't sure if it had ever happened that early on where you got an actress nominated at that point so i considered it a snub but again there's a chance that she just didn't even qualify for the awards but i regardless judy garland one of the most beloved actresses of all time had a terrible time on set uh, with the Wizard of Oz, just a famous, just mess of a production for her, which is highlighted in some of her books uh, or her writings. But regardless, that performance is about as, and it's not just iconic, it's truly a wonderful performance from her singing to just how she interacts with the, all the four characters. It's a film that completely stands the test of time. And see, having seen it again recently, it feels timeless which is really hard for a film to feel timeless, but specifically even harder for a film to, from the 1930s to come out and still feel magical. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I agree. So, so the next one I'm going to give you, you can tell me if you don't think this really uh, qualifies or, or not because it would get into some of those early um, uh, Academy rules, mm-hmm. um, is I'm going to go back uh, to 1950 with Rashomon, which is uh, a film that many people consider to be Akira Kurosawa's best film. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. this movie did receive an honorary Oscar for best foreign film. Um, but we certainly have a situation now um, uh, where, uh, as we saw with Parasite, that a foreign film can actually win the best picture of the year in America. And and I would argue in 1950, um, it's hard to pick a more iconic movie than Rashomon. And it was not up for uh, best picture. Um, it, it Like I said, it was, it was given an honorary award, but not in the best picture category. Yeah, I totally think that qualifies... Because I think you, at that time, you also were starting to see some foreign films make it out and get nominated. If if I'm correct, doesn't Seven Samurai make it in the Best Picture nominations like five years later? Uh, yeah, I, I believe you're you're right. And and you know, I, I, I get Kurosawa's. If you've watched his movies, he's got such a great body of work. It's uh, some would argue that Seven Samurai is his best. Others would argue that it's it's Rashomon probably. Mm. And well, we could throw a bunch of titles in, in there and do a show just on Kurosawa. Oh, but yeah. um, but Rashomon, one of those films. If you study the structure and things, I, I would argue that that movies for decades later uh, were playing around with similar structures and referencing it in just a film that um, really drove the direction of, of cinema for a while. So to not even have it up for best picture uh, seemed like a pretty tremendous snub to me. Yeah, that definitely, I didn't realize that that one had missed it out. I'm going to go back one further than you. And then I'm in relatively modern ages, I guess, as you could call it. This one might be a personal choice just due to how much I love this movie. And it's possibly top five Disney movies for me of all time. It's Dumbo. 
from, I want to say 1942, I believe is the year. And Dumbo to me is one that I think on an emotional level, it's the one that has always hit me the hardest for Disney. Just everything from Dumbo having to say goodbye to the mom, the baby oh mine sequence, even in the recent live action version with Tim Burton directing, it still hits that same impact. But focusing on this one, I just think, you know, Snow White comes out a few years earlier, wins all types of awards. And I think Dumbo just doesn't get that same recognition. And I think just in general, Dumbo is one of the ones that's easily forgotten in the Disney pantheon. You know, you had Snow White a few years earlier, uh, a few years after Dumbo, I believe you have Pinocchio, Bambi's in that same run. And I think Dumbo is just the one that's ignored. Maybe it's because it's the shortest runtime out of all of them at like 66 minutes. But I just truly think Dumbo is a beautiful film, a very touching film, very sweet film. Uh, an odd one, certainly, just due to some of the visual uh, scenes in there, specifically with the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on it, the pink elephant scene in the middle of the film where it definitely gets a little out there. But regardless, I, I just enjoy the living crap out of Dumbo. So that it had to make my list. Well, yeah, Dumbo, uh, I, I mean, what, what can you say? And way, way better than the Tim Burton remake, right? So if, yeah. if, if you've only seen that and never gone back and, and watched that uh, original um, animated version of Dumbo, uh, take Ben's and my word for it. It's a, a really great film. And, and I agree, uh, you know, gosh, some of those, those early Disney films were not recognized in the way that they, they should have been. You know, what's shocking is I actually quite enjoy the Tim Burton remake, not as much obviously as the original, but for whatever reason that Tim Burton remake worked, you, did you see it? I, I did. And yeah, actually, I had a, a another student who's a big film buff give me a hard time because I when I originally saw it, I gave it a, a good review, not a great review. I yeah. gave it, I think, three stars. Um, and he was giving me a hard time because he thought it was terrible. But, I, <laughs> you know, I enjoyed it when I watched it. I enjoy it less in retrospect when I, I break it down. But uh, um, I, I, I did like I, I think Colin Farrell is a terribly underutilized actor and I like seeing him in it. So so there are definitely things that work about that movie. Yeah, certainly. I, Whenever you put Michael Keaton in a movie yeah. with Tim Burton, there's always just going to be some form of magic in there. True. Uh, just inherently just with those two personalities. But I just went. So it is your turn. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to go to 1958 uh, and the movie Vertigo mm, okay. uh, and say that the well, it, it interestingly enough was not nominated for Best Picture, which we could say that was a travesty. Mm. But since we're talking about an Alfred Hitchcock film. <laughs> Um, uh, perhaps the bigger uh, travesty is that Alfred Hitchcock was not nominated as director for Vertigo, um, which is a movie that many people consider to be his best film. He would get nominated as a director in 1960 for Psycho, which is, uh, you know, perhaps better known, although if I'm correct, Psycho also was not up for best picture that so correct. we have a bunch of, of of hitchcock snubs in here but I, I i think hitchcock not getting a nomination for vertigo um is is really a shame and and there's probably a variety of reasons for this if you read about the history of film um hitchcock was not the most beloved person to work with in the yes. industry although we look back at him and and see him as this fabulous talent which he was 
uh, his reputation wasn't exactly like he was the guy that you wanted to work with. So I expect that had um, something to do with this, but I still think uh, in the pantheon of film, when you're looking at great movies, vertigo's right up there. Um, and what can you say about his work in that movie? It's, it's really good work. <laughs> yeah. So I cheated here and I just said Hitchcock in general was a snub at the Academy Awards, because if you look down the list of films that Hitchcock had made and which ones had gone nominations or which actors or actresses had or had not, or when he gets directed for when he gets picked for best director, there was just too many to pick from, whether it's the psycho snubs, whether it's uh, uh, not getting nominated for rear window though, maybe rear wind. I think he gets nominated, but I think it misses out or maybe it's, he gets nominated for best picture doesn't get director for that one not positive there but there were just so many of those misses that i couldn't qualify i couldn't quantify which one to me was the biggest like egregious snub in my personal opinion it would i would probably agree with you that vertigo was the most shocking but yeah so i just put hitchcock as a category because there's honestly you could probably make the argument that this show could have just been all hitchcock yeah, well, for sure. And I, I looked it up just so our, our listeners know. So um, Hitchcock was up for best director on Rear Window, but it was not up for best picture. Okay. Uh, but he wasn't up for best director on or best picture on North by Northwest. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I agree with you. He, he was he's just uh, notoriously left out, uh, perhaps because of that uh, reputation perhaps uh, the genre thing that you already mentioned because he did make quote unquote genre films, but mm. for, for whatever reason, um, uh, yeah, he, he, his name should be mentioned a lot more than it is in Academy history. Yeah. And since we're just talking about Hitchcock, it's kind of a perfect transition. Uh, and I cannot believe I did not write down his name, but it was uh, the actor who plays Norman Bates in Psycho. Uh, oh, like uh, I can't. Why am I, I just wrote Norman Bates in my notes, and I don't know. I think it. I think I meant to go look it up again, but we don't have to talk about it that long because it kind of just ties in everything to Hitchcock. But again, that's such a scary, traumatizing performance, and one that I think you would see emulated a lot more coming with the 1970s to 90s, where serial killer films start becoming more of the norm. I think you see shades of that in performances like Robert De Niro's in Taxi Driver and certainly Kevin Spacey in Seven. Uh, you definitely see that character further explored by actors. And I think that's just kind of the great, I think it's probably one of the best early murderer performances that would define that genre. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Patrick, absolutely. No, not Patrick Bateman. Never mind. That's a uh, American Psycho. I'm getting it mixed up. I can't believe I didn't pull his name, but uh, regardless, I'll pull the name in a second, but I'll let you. Anthony Perkins. That's it. it. Anthony Perkins. (laughs) I I can't believe I didn't remember that off the top of my, my head, frankly, but uh, so we're both embarrassed, but now we've got it for listeners. (laughs) So uh, I'll let you jump in because I just went with uh, Anthony Perkins. 
Sure. Well, um, I often, as you can see, sort of like to look at the the big picture. So I'm going to go with a uh, best picture snub. Um, if you look at lists of great um, American movies, um, and particularly if you enjoy comedies, a film title that's going to come up a lot in, say, the top 50 American movies of all time is going to be Some Like It Hot from 1959. Yep. Mm -hmm. Really tremendous cast. Uh, but that movie was uh, snubbed for the best picture race. You do get a fair amount of nominees there. I think you got uh, six nominees, including best actor for Jack Lemmon. Um, interestingly, best director for Billy Wilder. So you got a best director nomination, but not a best picture nomination. Um, you did not get a nomination for Marilyn Monroe, uh, probably uh, her most famous work. Uh, but I, I mean, I think this is such an iconic comedy. When I think about earlier Hollywood uh, comedies. Um, I think about films like, uh, you know, His Girl Friday, when I think about screw girl, uh, uh, screwball comedies, and I think about, you know, Some Like It Hot as one of the absolute greats, uh, not up for best picture. And to me, that's that's really um, a shame because I, I think in retrospect, people consider it, you know, one of the best American comedies ever made, not yeah. just of the year 1959. And that's funny because she was actually my next name that I was going to bring up was Marilyn Monroe for Some Like It Hot. Uh, ah. Again, Marilyn Monroe has this thing in the 50s and 60s where she kind of transcends actor, actress, I guess, norms and is even further than a celebrity. She's kind of the ultimate celebrity at that time. And I think that might might have acted against her for the awards just Due to who Marilyn was, the stories surrounding her, some of the affairs she was kind of involved with at the time, I think she might have been a little too non-prestigious for the Academy Awards at the time. She was just too much of who she was. But regardless, it's still a great performance and one that I think Monroe often gets forgotten for how good of an actress she was and is often kind of remembered more as the sex symbol kind of the ultimate celebrity where I think her act acting abilities often get shamefully ignored. Yeah, I agree. And since you brought her up, something I had on my list that a film I wanted to talk about um, uh, was the misfits from 1961. I don't know if you've seen that. I have film. not seen this one. Uh, an, an awful lot of people have not. Um, I'm really aware of it because we established at the start of the show. Um, I worked in Reno, Nevada for a long time, and mm -hmm. much of this film um, was uh, filmed just outside of, of Reno in the Washoe Valley. And it's kind of an, an, an iconic film for uh, people who live in Reno because it was filmed here. And, and at the time it was being made, um, you know, in the, the, trying to remember if it was filmed in the late 50s i think it was about 1960 they were actually filming you had all of these big movie stars come to to reno uh, mm. one of them being uh marilyn monroe we also had clark gable we also had montgomery clift we had mm. thelma ritter really big name stars 
Um, and for many of these people, it, it was either their last film or close to their last film. So we had these iconic stars making this movie, a really great cast. And we had the director, John Huston, uh, and the screenwriter was Arthur Miller. So a yeah, wow. <laughs> tremendous amount of big names. Um, and the movie didn't get a single nomination, probably the one snub, although I, I used Marilyn Mer Monroe to, you know, sort of transition into this uh, would be John Huston not getting a, a directing nomination for this. Um, and I say that because he was recognized by the Directors Guild. Um, the folks in the Directors Guild uh, found this film to be enough of an accomplishment um, that they uh, uh, gave him uh, a nomination for his work on The Misfits. Uh, but the Academy as a whole didn't seem uh, see fit to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's I I have never heard of the film, but that's one that's certainly going to be added to my list just with that insane cast crew working on it. I have one. This is one of the few that I have that's not, I guess, in the big five categories. I have the Beatles in the 1960s not getting nominated for Best Original Score or Soundtrack uh, for Help, Yellow Submarine, or Hard Day's Night. Now. Uh, the only one that I could confirm that should have been nom that could have been nominated for sure is help because that one, it sounds like the songs were written specifically for that movie, which means it would qualify. The Beatles go on to win uh, one for best original score in 1970 for let it be their documentary. But regardless, I mean, there's not much to say about it except that it's the Beatles and they're one of the most, sorry not one of the most they're the most iconic band of all time and all of those 13 studio albums are amazing and the fact that it doesn't even get nominated is just kind of shocking uh, yeah well I, I i would agree and when you look at some of the the musicians that do have oscars <laughs> yeah oh yeah <laughs> I, and you can, and, and then you talk about the Beatles, and it's like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? Three Six Mafia, I think. Three has Six it, Mafia has it. Uh, Eminem, of course, famously yeah. has one. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so Beatles were just mine for there. So I'll let you jump in again. Well, since you went outside the big categories, although this is still a biggish category, I, I'm going to um, uh, talk about screenwriting for one um, and show my age here uh, for your listeners. I'm 53, which means I grew up in the 1980s, which means I have a real soft spot for John Hughes films. Yeah. Okay. And uh, The Breakfast Club, 1985, uh, you know, certainly one of the most famous John Hughes films, although it's it's difficult to pick a favorite. Uh, but he was not nominated for screenplay uh, for that film. Um, and I think when we look back in retrospect, I can understand why the Academy wouldn't nominate a film like Breakfast Club for screenplay because it it perhaps doesn't have the seriousness that they are usually looking for in films that win this. But when I think we start looking back at eras and how they were defined by the entertainment being presented um, and, and, and the way that they have molded us as people um, that these John Hughes screenplays from the 1980s had a real impact on society and really an entire generation of, of people in my age. Um, so I look at that and I think, uh, you know, he probably should have been nominated for that film because it's it stood the test of time. And I still have young college students today that tell me they watch this music and or this uh, movie and, and love it. Yeah, I, great movie. I love it as well. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, not much else you could say about The Breakfast Club. I think you perfectly summarized it, but just an excellent movie, one that still feels realistic enough to high school experience, and one that I think also just is a comedy, but actually has some of those darker moments that really ground the movie in its realism. So I have three more that I'm going to bring up, and I would be shocked if one of them you don't have, but I'm going to go with one kind of outside-the-box one, and there's no way you have this one. I guarantee you. It is a cinematography for Donald Peterman in 1991. He, he was the cinematographer for a Catherine Bigelow movie, Point Break. And here, I couldn't put Patrick Swayze in the Best Supporting Actor, even though I love the movie. I just couldn't put, I couldn't realistically say that that was a oscar winning performance even if in my own heart that is probably one of the greatest performances of all time same with uh keanu reeves i just couldn't justify them but i wanted to justify point break somewhere and cinematography is actually one where this film is amazing whether it's the skydiving sequences that are, are adrenaline rush visceral whether it's the bank robberies uh the surfing sequences. This film is 1990s California to a peak, and I think it's wonderful. I yeah, I actually enjoy that film quite a lot. So I I uh, I, I accept that pick wholeheartedly. And and also having seen the I think it was 2015 remake, uh, caution never people. Need to see. Yeah, caution people against that movie <laughs> and say, hey, go back to 1991 because they they did it right the first time. Uh, but yeah, really really fun movie and and fun uh, pick there, Ben. Yeah. So I'll let you jump in uh, now. Yeah, well, since we're in the 1990s, a good uh, way to transition, I think, for me, uh, would be one that's probably going to surprise a lot of people uh, if they don't uh, look it up, um, is Reservoir uh, Dogs. Uh, yes. So mm -hmm. uh, Res Reservoir Dogs in 1993 um, did, did not get a uh, uh, Best Picture nomination or probably, you know, what I would pick as the snub would be uh, Best uh, Director or writer director for Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Tarantino doesn't get a, a directing nomination for this film. Um, what, what can I say? I mean, if you like Tarantino, this is one of his greats. Um, it's, it's the Tarantino style. Um, you know, it, it really, I think Tarantino is one of those filmmakers who changed movies. And by that, I mean, did things, um, differently enough, put enough of a stamp on films that we saw people copying him for decades, uh, sort of like Hitchcock. So to have, you know, one of his great movies uh you know not recognized or to at least have his directing work not recognized to me is a is a shame yeah uh this actually isn't one of my personal favorite tarantino movies but it certainly is what's the word for it 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 does transcend it kind of kicks off the 90s indie movement in a lot of ways so it certainly is deserving of it even if it's just one that ultimately i feel like he makes this film better with Pulp Fiction uh, and does more with the genre then, but it certainly is deserving of it. And especially for, which I do believe it actually does get dominated for writing that year. 
Oh yeah, I think you're right. I think it was directing that I. So my my mistake there. <laughs> yeah, but regardless, it is a, it is the beginning of a career that's just going to span and just kind of just change Hollywood with Tarantino. I have two more that I'll bring up. One of them, I'm curious if you've seen the film now because I don't think you had seen it last time we had talked about it, was Robert De Niro in The King of Comedy. You know, I have not seen that yet, although when I was doing research for this film, I I I remembered our conversation and, and thought, oh, I bet Ben's going to talk about that one. So, yes. go well, ahead. So this film, besides helping me win, uh, get published for history, which obviously that means it has a soft spot in my heart. It there's this period of time where Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro are working together, specifically in the 70s and 80s, whether uh, beginning with Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. And it kind of, that run ends with King of Comedy. Of course, they would c- go back and work together in the 90s. But King of Comedy, out of the, some of those characters that he plays for D- Scorsese, is the one that's just forgotten. It's one that's not known. It was a controversial film when it came out just due to the recent John Hinckley Jr. shootings, Martin Scorsese's direct ties with that. Uh, inspiring uh, Hinckley being inspired by Taxi Driver. This is kind of his almost just emotional, visceral response to reacting to those crimes and having his name just brought up with this guy who tried to assassinate a president. And De Niro just gives an unhinged performance, one that I think is just as disturbing, if not more disturbing than his performance as Bickle in Taxi Driver, You've never seen De Niro like this. It is comedy, but it is comedy done to just the utmost extreme uncomfortability. And it just works in every aspect. He is a psychopath, sociopath, really any word you could use to describe him. He is a narcissist. And he has this great timing off uh, the other actor, Jerry Lewis, in the film that is just unmatched and... Yeah, De Niro is excellent. And for a guy who has just delivered some of the most iconic performances of all time, King of Comedy is one that just goes shamefully just underappreciated and often unknown. I think the only reason it's had a resurgence in the past year is just due to how much, uh, what's his name, who directed, Todd Phillips, who directed Joker, borrowed from King of Comedy, which has kind of given that film a new life. But regardless, De Niro's just amazing in this performance. And he was the second name that I thought of when I was making this list after my first one, which I'll bring up in a second. Yeah, yeah definitely still on my, my list. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll let you jump and then I'll go with my last one. All right. Well, one thing I want to be sure to, to mention before we do this, uh, you know, you may remember from the class that I gave is um, the Oscars have been terrible historically uh, about recognizing uh, minority work mm-hmm. in motion pictures in large part, probably because the voting body up until recent years was not very diverse. They've made some really great steps in that. Um, but I don't think anything represents that fact uh, better than perhaps the 1990 uh, spike 
Lee yep. film, uh, Do the Right Thing. Um, there are two Oscar nominations for that. One, uh, people might say now shamefully, uh, is for Danny Aiello, not because he didn't give a great performance, but be because they He's nominated the one, one white actor. The, 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 the white movie. actor in the film didn't yeah. nominate any of the black cast. They did, thankfully, nominate Spike Lee as a screenwriter, but they did not nominate him for director um, in a film that many people considered uh, not only the best film of the year but one of the best films of that entire era and so i think spike lee not getting a directing nomination for do the right thing when we when we look at this even decades from now we'll go that that one was a mistake <laughs> yeah uh that was the name that i figured both of you and i were gonna have he was the last name that i was gonna mention it's it's spike lee for do the right thing and what's shocking is i'll just tell the story real quick of my experience watching do the right thing. I had seen the film June of 2020. So during the pandemic, cause I was watching all films just during the pandemic, watched the film first time, liked it, but didn't fully understand it and didn't get the ending of the film. Just didn't, didn't fully understand, I guess the weight that the ending had. And then I looked up on Twitter and it was, the day George Floyd had been killed. And all of a sudden that movie has such a different resonance with me and rewatching it after the film's a masterpiece. It's Spike Lee's, I mean, magnum opus in just all honesty. It's, and one that horrifyingly, but is still so relevant today and maybe even more relevant than when it came out, which is shocking. But, I, yeah, I, I was going to say that, Ben. It's the sad thing is three decades later, you can watch this film and sort of shake your head and 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 think about how little has changed. Yeah. So that was certainly the one that came to my head as well. When I was thinking of the 20th century snubs, this was the first one on my list. Uh, so, yeah, that is our 20th century snubs and force i know i have to let you go because i know you have to start prepping a class but before you go i just wanted to get briefly uh oscars are coming out this sunday today is the 21st i believe they're happening on the 26th this sunday i wanted to just hear your big uh i believe it's uh let's go best picture best director best actor and best actress Okay, well, I'll, I'll start uh, with the acting awards. Um, I've got a, a variety of picks here. I think Viola Davis is going to win for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom for okay. Best uh, Actress. Um, I would actually give that one to uh, Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. She's um, my although, pick. Uh, yeah, although yeah. I think uh, Viola Davis is brilliant. Um, actor, uh, do, do you want to add your picks yeah, in here? Yeah, uh... okay. I'll go real quick after each of your picks. I actually have Francis McDormand winning it for No Man's Land, but I do think Carrie Mulligan should be the one winning it. Okay, so we both agree on who should win and both think somebody else is going to win. Yeah. Um, actor, um, I, to, to be honest, I think Chadwick Boseman um, uh, for uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom has this uh, one sewn up. Yeah, and, and I think he should win it. Uh, so I, I have no divergency there. I think he's going to win. I think he should win. Agreed. Uh, with Delroy Lindo not getting nominated at all, Chadwick Boseman was the clear winner to me in this category. 
Okay. Uh, for director, I hope I'm saying her name right because I, I, I may not be right, but I, I'm going with Chloe uh, Zhao for Nomadland as the winner. Um, I, I think all things sort of point in her direction. If it was me, uh, nothing against Nomadland. I think it's a fine film. Um, I would probably go with David Fincher for Mank in part because I'm a Citizen Kane nut mm. and I loved that film uh but i mean i think they're both worthy choices i have chloe Zhao winning it as well personally and i can't pronounce the person's name correctly uh emerald Farrell, i believe for promising young woman would be my pick though in fairness i'm seeing no man's land friday so i'm gonna be certain whether uh that is my pick for sure well, Nomad Madland is a, I'll say this for people, it's a tough watch in that it's a film. Um, it's its not an upbeat film. It's not mm. one of those films that makes you feel good, but it's a very good movie. And yeah. since you mentioned that, all the smart money seems to be uh, saying that Nomadland is going to win uh, Best Picture. Uh, the pr Directors Guild, the Producers Guild both picked it as Best Picture. Um, so I think it probably is going to win. Um, if I had to give this award out with the nominees they have, I'd give it to The Trial of the Chicago 7, a, a film that I just loved, a historical uh, biopic, and not as depressing at the mm. ending as Nomadland. Uh, but I do think Nomadland's probably going to get the uh, top honor. Yeah, Trial of Chicago 7 ended up being my favorite film of last year, though Promising Young Woman does give it a run for its money for me. I ultimately, I actually think Minari could shock Sunday night. Uh, I think just, and this is based on everything that the Oscars have been more with diversifying. I think this one could be one of the ones where it's just another almost Parasite win where it was, in some ways, the one that people were like, ah, this probably won't get nominated. And also just with some of the recent events that have been going on in American history the past few weeks uh, with Asian hate, I know that could certainly encourage people to seek out the movie, which uh, that helps get a film a win when people are actively trying to see it. Because often you hear the stories with Academy Awards some of the people don't end up seeing more than like two or three no movies that are nominated ultimately ends up becoming the story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting film too. I, I've got to say, I like, I like this year's crop of nominees after a really weird pandemic rattled year. There's a really good crop of film up, up for awards at the Oscars. I will say that. So it's I, I look at that best picture list um, and some films are more fun than others. Yes. But I don't think you can go wrong watching any of them. They're all good works of art. Yes. Though I will admit if Mank wins, I will be a little upset. I, <laughs> I, I understand as a Citizen Kane fan, you like that movie. For me, it was too too much of everything to get into it was just too much it felt like homework at times trying to like understand the film even if it is directed tremendously interesting well of course i'm a david fincher nut too yeah so <laughs> biases play play into this of love course. citizen kane love david fincher so i i had to like that movie i guess yeah <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for us for coming on the show is there anything you'd like to plug or any websites or anything People oh, no, I, I guess I'll just say people can go go to forresthartman.com. There are two R's in my name, Forrest, if they want to check out what I'm up to. Uh, but mostly, Ben, I just want to say thanks for inviting me on. It's, yeah. it's been a great time. 
if you ever need if you ever want to come back on for our main show feel free in fact if you ever just want to record a podcast that you'll end up using to teach your class so you don't have to teach that day feel free we'll record the podcast and you can have that day off and just have the kids listen to my show which will all it will do is increase my ratings as well well, yeah, that sounds that sounds good to me. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you ever want a guest, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out. It's it's really nice to talk to you. And uh, I enjoy doing this. So thanks, yeah. Ben. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, everybody, take care. And I'll see you next week when Branson and I will be talking about the 21st century snubs. So take care and have a good week. Bye.